Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Hey, welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. I'm thrilled to have our guest on, Dr. Angel Iskovich. He is the president of Inflection, a healthcare advisory company, and previously served as chief executive officer of the Qualitas Group of Envision Healthcare, focused on developing the healthcare workforce. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Routineology. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to be on the show. Thank you. So Anhil, as a visionary, what is the story that you would like to share with the world? Well, I think it seems appropriate that uh, looking at what I think is how did the, did the, uh, this pandemic and our response to pandemic occur is um, a focused understanding of how different this pandemic uh, response has been in, in modern times and uh, compared to modern times. And so uh, the main aspect of the story that I don't think people understand is how it is that physician specialties working jointly as um, a group of specialties come up with a concept and how it's pushed out very quickly, almost like an army of understanding by specialists. And I wanted to explain a little bit of that. I think that is a story that uh, kind of changes how we look at why this happened so quickly. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there was a narrative. There's a, this is a, a message that came out. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, and I think the thing that uh, people have to understand is that um, this is driven really by the federal government response, the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force. And what happened in, in this situation are two major factors that forced us into kind of a sense of panic and fear. One was the ever-present media, uh, the media's viewership now is so competitive. And when there are disasters or pandemics, what people tend to do is to rubberneck. They want to hear the bad stuff. It's like going to the to a NASCAR race sometimes or Indianapolis waiting for that accident to happen. And consequently, um, this was what was pushed to the point that we could have in our hands uh, pictures of Italy and New York understanding the devastation of this disease. And then the other is the important factor I wanted to speak more to, which is the risk-averse nature of physicians and how a very narrow lens of specialties, namely those of infectious disease and public health, put forth a type of thinking that put us into the state that we're in today. I know your, your latter point was actually really interesting because I always hear about, you know, we're always talking about specializing and we've gotten so specialized that we've created like these weird silos, right? That it becomes right. disconnect. Do you see that in healthcare and what, what's like the ramifications of that? Yeah, yes, this, this was really the case uh, in this situation. What you have to understand is that the drivers to uh, this federal response are people that have a lens of infectious disease like Dr. Fauci and public health in general. And what one has to understand is that um, these are specialties that are very narrow on how they approach uh, eradicating a disease process. And for the reasons I think that our initial estimates of the modeling 
of 2.2 million to 10 million were actually in the end wrong. And that in the end, there wasn't going to be what was happening in New York, the response to the rest of the country. When it was seen as so broad, the, so to speak, Corona White House, uh, the, the White House task force, you have to understand that it goes from the federal government to the state health departments, from the state health departments to the county departments to the city and local departments. And what I mean to say is that these are people that have a view of how to deal with pandemics that is very clear. They go to conferences together, just like cardiologists go to conferences, and eventually we decide that statin drugs are good for people with coronary disease. What occurs in these situations is that a type of thinking, a belief in thinking, quickly gets um, believed to be the case and is pushed right down to the local level. This is why this happens so quickly a very uniform response related to essentially a quarantine approach or um, uh, self-distancing approaches became very quickly the norm across the nation. And this became a one-size-fits-all approach, which um, some people, of course, criticize because of its impact um, being greater in some areas other than, uh, than other areas. So this is how, whether it's cardiology, or infectious disease or public health, how specialists with their lens quickly communicate with their colleagues. And in this case, quickly push forward the thought. And of course, those, the politicians and those that are leaders go forward and listen, of course, to the physicians. Um, in this case, Dr. Fauci became really the most trusted person in the United States on how to respond to the virus and his thinking and the thinking of the task force went across the nation. Sure. Well, so I want to go back to something you said earlier. We talk about the the cultural milieu. We're talking about being a risk averse culture. Now, I've read that in uh, back in the '60s, Woodstock occurred during a, during a pandemic. Um, back then, it would seem that we did not have a risk averse culture, but we definitely do now. What changed uh, from that point until now? How do we get to the place that we are now? Well, I believe that. Um, you know, if you if if you look at Dr. Henderson, who was uh, attributed with um, basically eradicating smallpox, okay, by modern methodologies, which are the use of vaccines and appropriate kind of areas of regional and local uh, quarantine and distancing, um, you see that that's what we've utilized in in it, since the 19th century, in modern times, the pandemics, for example, during um, uh, the Hong Kong flu, 1968, um, or you look at uh, the, our response in 2009 to H1N1, it was very, very focused, very regionalized. Um, but what happened now comes back to the two major points. One is such a broad array of media bringing forth from viewership um, the information that we were rubbernecking for, which caused panic and fear um, and we've become uh, risk-averse, uh, particularly in the physician community, where pretty, even from 2009, the last 10 years, let alone 1968, the amount of liability, the amount of communication that taking any risk could lend you in regard to making a wrong decision mm -hmm. keeps us risk-averse. And my point here is that even in today's times, we know 70% of how these viruses react. It's the other 30% that we're not sure of 
that we weren't willing to make any estimates, any risk stratifications, the kinds of things we even do when we talk to someone about their cancer or what we know about it, even though we don't know exactly how it'll be for you. Those are the kinds of things that have made us risk averse. Remember, in my last sighting, the, 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 uh, we have 70% of the world's attorneys in the United States. And so we have a litigious society and a very connected media society that can very quickly be unforgiving mm-hmm. for a mistake that you actually make or a prediction that you make. I think that's actually a really powerful point you're making because it feels like any kind of misstep is magnified a thousandfold. And like you're talking about, it makes people way more risk averse, almost afraid to make a mistake. Does that potentially lead to sometimes like inaction or paralysis by analysis because of that lens looking at us? Well, I think in in this case, um, with, with what we know of how viruses act, but that which we didn't know, I think made us react in a very risk averse uh, way, um, a way that was uh, a default that said, look, um, if we keep away from each other, kind of going back to a 13th, 14th century approach of, of, of how we deal with pandemics, um, we're going to probably be uh, able to win. If, if it works, then it's because we did if it's low, if it's, if it's really very bad in its impact, um, then we're gonna be able to say that it would have been less. So you take a position uh, of uncertainty, you don't take a position of any um, predictions or estimates or statistical estimates. And um, I think that's how physicians work today more so than ever. Even on the ground today, it's different when you have a cancer patient, let's say with leukemia, and you know that this type of leukemia, only 60% of people survive in 90 days. How physicians present this today, um, where they might have given hope, maybe done a little bit of placebo, saying there's always that other 40%, that's not the type of information that is, is given or risk taken. Um, being not exactly correct or predictive or prognostic as we talk about it. What you're, what you're saying to me uh, reminds me a lot about parenting. Um, I don't know how it was when you were growing up. Uh, I know you, you were in a different country. Um, but when I was a kid, we were running around all the time and we were acting crazy. We actually had a lot of toy guns and we were running around just shooting each other like little boys do. Um, and we were out to all hours of, of the day and night. And they called that free range children now. Uh, whereas a lot of parents, especially in this country, to your point about us being very litigious, um, a, very, a lot of parents are afraid to even have their child walk alone to the bus stop and take the bus. And it seems like even though uh, the, the crime ha- has gone down in this country, we become much more risk averse. When it comes to parenting, we don't want to let our kids go out and do these things. And now it feels yeah. like that they call it, you know, helicopter parenting. It feels like is that what you're saying now, where we have become a very risk-averse society from the way we parent and now the way that we're dealing with this crisis when it comes to the pandemic? I think, I think uh, that's absolutely correct. It's kind of a, a, a cultural change that's uh, really uh, occurred in both how we parent and how we look at disease. Basically, we have this belief of the information that we receive, and we receive so much digital information. As I talk about in my book, it becomes kind of uh, very disruptive, takes us away from being able to do routines. 
um, allows us to, gives us at times fear because we see so many things that are happening that in previous worlds, especially where I grew up, we never knew these kinds of things were happening, not immediately anyway. Um, so the immediacy of, of seeing this makes for all of, of this risk that's out there. And um, I think in a way, in regard to the, the pandemic and our approach, in, in essence, what we believe in medical science and um, the digital world, so to speak, in the end, kind of let us down because we have this great belief that medical science will keep our risks low, for example, that our information from the digital world, media, will keep our, 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 us safe in the sort. And here comes along a virus of which we've, short of, let's say, smallpox, we haven't really cured most viruses. We've been able to keep some down either to be local or regional, endemic, uh, in some cases, like influenza or colds. And in the end, we had to, no real science, no real immediate testing, no real immediate answer um, to this. And what eventually happens in, in the sense that we believed in it and believed that it would guide us, keep our risks low. In fact, we just went back to kind of, let's just stay away from each other. Um, and again, this was purported and pushed really by the lens, a narrower lens of infectious disease specialists and public health doing what they thought they could do and pushing it very quickly down uh, to the local level. And now what's happened is some very basic human conditionings occurred in regard to our staying away. Everybody is sent now senses we've become become risk averse to the point that everyone is a viral threat now. If you're near me, you're a viral threat. Well, that happens because we've stayed away and many people have found some very good things that have happened. It's not all damaging collateral damage or some collateral value, but what's happened is, I hate to say how human we are and I hate to say that we're psychologically able to be like mice, but what's happened is in the simplest way is we've gotten this reward of not getting sick, not being ill by staying away. And that is reinforced us staying away. Consequently, our abilities to overcome this most basic psychological aspects of this risk that we have being near anyone is going to take quite a bit of time. We've been conditioned basically to stay away from each other. And now of course, this is being politicized as well about how much one needs to do. There's, there's, you know, we're, we're scared about second waves and what else might happen in the sort. So that's a little bit about how both on a psychological level, we're risk averse on how in a way medical science and the digital world that we believe in has kind of really let us down and staying away from the risk. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you know, we always talk about we're good with the immediate threat, right? Like that rustling in the bush and it's the, the slow moving or the long-term or the exponential and growing one we struggle with. But I, you know, I would have, I would have thought the same thing that, that you do uh, that people would be hesitant to kind of go back and, you know, to, to a normal and engage and, you know, everyone is kind of a, a coronavirus carrier, but, you know, they started reopening up Orange County and I was actually amazed or shocked is probably the better word that 
how many people suddenly were putting social distancing to the side and trying to reconnect with friends and all these things. And it's like, they've totally forgotten about what we just went through. I mean, what, what happened there? I mean, is it's, it seems like we, we went for like, did a 180 on this whole thing and trying to protect ourselves. Well, you know, it kind of a little bit of what we're seeing depends on the age groups. Also, when I talk to people that are a little bit older, like myself, and felt like they were at risk because it was because being older and having any conditions, you know, other condi- medical conditions w- would be a risk. I've done a little of my own anecdotal survey and those group of people, I say, look, if everything's clear and you can go meet with 20 people, would you go? And they go, no. On the other hand, I think humans need to interact. Humans need to uh, transact. Uh, humans have that need. And I think what we just did, which is, I believe, an experiment, never really been done, um, at least ever in modern times, where we stayed away, stopped us from transacting, uh, maybe was made a little easier by our digital world today. The ability to watch movies at home wasn't the case in 1912. The ability to talk on Zoom like we are today and, and the sort wasn't able to be done. Um, the ability to entertain ourselves while alone Ability to communicate that we could still be together. But I think w- what occurred is that, uh, let's say in Orange County or in Florida, where you saw people um, in the height of being not being able to interact, to really have a group of people, particularly in the younger groups, not really pay attention uh, to what was most uh, promoted as the thing to do and the caution that you need to have. On the other hand, at least anecdotally for me, those people that are a bit older have become really more cautious. Um, and I think there's going to be a transition that's going to take time. I completely agree with you. I mean, I've, I've talked to different family members that are a little bit older and I get the same sense from them that they're just not coming out uh, and for, for the foreseeable future. And I think that's a shame. I think there is a conditioning element in place. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a new book out talking with strangers and it talks about the tendency that we have our natural disposition is to trust other people. And that's benefit our society. As you mentioned before, we're very social creatures, right? And so if we begin to mistrust other people, and to your point, if we begin to think everybody is a potential contagion, I mean, what does that do to the fabric of society? It's not good. So, but let me let me shift an, another idea here. If, Anhil, you could go back in time, what would have been, what would have been the right approach? Because you've talked about the federal and then the state and now the local. If you were to go back in time and kind of guide these policies that would have prevented this mistrust that we're talking about and all of these externalities, how would you have approached it? Well, it wouldn't have been a panicked one size fits all approach where we all, no matter where we are quarantined. In fact, the way I'd kind of look at it is what we're doing now, when you see the phasings of phase one, phase two, phase three, that's the applications of the guidelines that going back, and it's easy to look backwards, I would have promoted something that was the way we've done it before, maybe not in the size, uh, uh, more strategic, more targeted. So when you look at Orange County, looking at what was happening, trying to get the data one could, one would say, look, you're going to be in a phase two. Here, uh, where I'm from in Santa Barbara County, knowing that there's not much from what we can tell, Let's start with a phase three. Um, we're winter in New York, where we know 
that there's tremendous amount of disease, a lot of contagion, a heavy load, very dense areas. That's what we know. Density is, is, is what causes this to be the case. Um, we'd have more lock, we'd have lockdowns. But we use that model of, of, of letting basically what we saw in Italy and in New York be the tail that wagged the dog for the rest of the nation without the willingness to take an approach that we're taking now, which is more of a cautious approach, which uh, says, let's take care of the uh, elderly. Um, let's make sure we look at the institutions, any high density areas. There's no reason we can't still have outpatient surgery if we do it well. We did this during the H1N1. And then if you see sp spots that start to pop up, like areas where poor people are living in very dense uh, environments um, or areas that are just dense environments, then we begin to approach and kind of work the phasing backwards. Uh, that would have been, I think, um, my approach. And in essence, has been the approach of what public health and infectious disease people have done. That's how they've approached it. It's been measured and strategic. It was in the H1N1. It was in the Hong Kong flu. Um, and it's been for other pandemics, including Ebola, AIDS, um, and we can go on and on. So this is very curious how uh, this happened. Very curious. So if we had to look at the, the future, you know, uh, what would your recommendations be? We talked about some of the, the phasings that you, you mentioned. Uh, right now, I think we have 40 million <clears throat> plus that are unemployed uh, due to these measures. Um, how can we get back to a, a normal that doesn't destroy the economy, uh, that allows us to recover while still being safe and being mindful that, that uh, there's still a danger out there, a threat? You know, uh, what I call the aftermath, which I saw early because as Dr. Henderson had previously pointed out that keeping populations from moving about and interacting and transacting and the impacts on the supply chain or getting food to people in the sort is, is something that he spoke about 50 years ago. Um, we now are living that aftermath. And uh, in particular, um, I think that the number of people, you know, and I'll speak specifically to healthcare. Um, the fact that we've kept um, people from accessing healthcare in order to focus on the system on COVID, hospitals, the fact that emergency departments have dropped to 50%, uh, the fact that all elective surgeries, private clinics, and the sort, short of the preponderance now of telemedicine, which I've, I've supported for many years. Um, is made for what could be a very, very uh, disastrous and difficult situation uh, in the healthcare um, of, of, our, of our country. And if you just take 40 million people who uh, are unemployed today, a quarter of the working population that is able to get, uh, let's say, unemployment today, if, if you take what's called excess deaths, even if you put them at 0.5% from suicide, opioids, the lack of medications that they were able to receive or healthcare that they were able to receive, you'd have an impact of almost 200,000 people just out of that 40 million. Even if you took a 0.5%, if you expand that to the people that weren't able to get care, um, 
the woman with a breast lump that had to wait to get a biopsy, the man with a little bit of rectal bleeding that needed a colonoscopy, the person that had a little chest pain and was scheduled to have a treadmill, the, pan the cancer patient that was trying to in in go into a trial at Stanford. And this kind of goes on and on, and we delayed this. Um, it's going to be very difficult for the healthcare system to ramp up. They've done a lot of layoffs. Um, they've lost millions of dollars. And although there's government support, it's going to be very, very difficult and delayed. So what is it you're asking for uh, solutions of the sort that we can do? And in, th in this case, um, it's going to be very dependent on your communities uh, in regard to being able to open up and receive the health care. But, but people are going to be very contracted and not willing to just hire everybody back and open up, open up the doors. Um, so I think we need to prioritize uh, really, again, those types of situations that we need to care for immediately. Certain types of things, whether it's the strokes, the cardiac events, we need to get a message back out, almost a PR message in the healthcare world, and I'm speaking specifically to that right now, that says, we're okay to come in. You don't have to be worried that you're going to be among sick people. We know we've said that, but now the doors are open for the following. We need to really get that word out if we're going to um, make what I think is a, a, an impact on what, what is the aftermath in healthcare. Well, that's it's really, really powerful stuff, especially knowing that everyone's worried about a wave two and what the futures look like and are we gonna learn our lessons this time around, right? Yeah, I think your point is very well taken because right now, again, following those the guidelines of the CDC and those being pushed to communities. Remember, a lot of healthcare is local. So that's why you'll see Orange County a little bit different than Santa Barbara, that you'll see it. And then you try to have the state overlay. Um, but but it's, 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 uh, it's going to be difficult because uh, in a number of uh, companies that I work with and others, uh, the fact that I do a lot of strategy and talk about the, the collateral damage of what just occurred is the need to um, be able to put together um, a kind of a strategic plan that's a one-year transition, one that relooks at what our mission should be, one that relooks at who we serve, one that relooks at the financial operations with new parameters, um, one that resets and uses financial forecasting and to try to make their companies and businesses work. The transition is, is one that I think uh, is longer than one might expect. And it's very deep what happened. And um, as we purport uh, the being cautious, it's going to make it more difficult. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation, by the way, on Hill. I mean, and you're offering perspectives that I have not heard so much. And really, this risk-averse notion has really crystallized some some of my own uh, curiosities and, and uh, my own problems with the way things were handled 
Um, let's go back to the first thing you said before we, we wrap up our interview today. You were talking about messaging and a narrative and going back to this idea of being a risk averse society, one that's fearful. In fact, I know that you have experience in AI because you sit on the board of an AI tech company. And of course, Neil and I do have the experience as well. It seems to me AI is being used to mitigate uncertainty. How can we project, not just for the medical community, but I'm talking about a media narrative for the entire population that moves us from a risk-averse society to a society that's able to deal with risk and yet to look forward and to be positive about the future? Yeah, so when I talk about the collateral damage that this has caused, you know, both uh, on the economic front, the medical front, social, social front, there is some collateral value. And I think one thing that we're learning is how to better use um, our, so to speak, digital world, our technology, and in particular, now be able to take a forefront of, of artificial intelligence, really, as a form of collateral value. And by that, I mean that now we can apply its predictive analytics um, to a whole host of both personal issues and otherwise, that give us a sense of information that allow us to mitigate the risk. Um, and I'm already seeing this, even in the company Potential Analytics, which I, I, I chair uh, the board uh, of this company, recently doing a, a work with IBM in Saudi Arabia, developing artificial intelligence as a network to, you, to get the data that comes from hospitals, and a centralized mission control, and using the artificial intelligence to understand how and what is the right flow, the right amount of staff required, and also to prioritize uh, disease and cases. So these are the types of things that we can now take the collateral value, just like telemedicine in the virtual world gives us a new approach that as now we're learning really works, um, similarly, we can refine arti artificial intelligence, its predictive uh, analytics in particular, which, which I, I work with, to um, help us mitigate that risk by the understanding that there are parameters to what is in fact going to be the case. And so, you know, we can't take lightly that 100,000 deaths have just occurred, and, and it's it's very significant. It's a significant number. Just think about the Coliseum having 100,000 people or the Rose Bowl. And it, it's so it's not to be it's not to be taken lightly. But as we look at future pandemics and as we look at how we respond, the ability of utilizing artificial intelligence and its predictive models could have really helped us be more targeted and the sort. And I think in personal ways. Um, and how we live our lives, the values of the ability to, as I've spoken about in the past, about artificial intelligence being able to know us better than we know ourselves by being able to monitor and take that data and tell us how to live healthier and better lives. I think this will be some of the collateral value and good outcomes from um, uh, this aftermath. Absolutely. So if people want to learn more, uh, they want to follow you, they want to get your new book, how can they get in touch with you, Angel? Well, you know, we've, we've uh, they call me for short Dr. I because people couldn't pronounce my name, Angel Iskovich as well. But, uh, you know, 
I've got the handle there, Dr. I, on, on, on Facebook and Angel Iskovich, uh, com, uh is another uh, place. Uh, and, you know, we really have been focusing on the importance of routine um, as routineology is about, is about the art and science and how to maximize life and, and how to cure crisis and how important the regularity is to our bodies. So um, this is what we were talking about more. And the great thing, the collateral values that we're now learning new routines that give us new value, new purpose and meaning in life. So uh, um, that's how to reach me, you know, just pop up Dr. I or angeliskovich.com and you'll see a little bit about our upcoming book and some of the messages I've been trying to quote. Great. Well, thank you again for being on our show. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you again. Sounds good. My pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.